Would you open your Bibles with me to John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It's good to be with you this morning to bring God's word to you. I'm going to pray again so I can be sure to have God working with me as I need him. Father, we do need you during this time to hear and to teach. Speak your word clearly. We ask you to give us hearts to receive your word and show us the glory of Jesus Christ more, more, and more. We need his mercy more. We need him more. So grant us hearing and hearts to receive him. We ask this in his holy name. Amen. So again, I'm Gary, one of the pastors here, and it's so good to be with you. It's just a joy, a privilege to break open God's word. So uh, you may have heard the phrase, to clean house, used as a kind of figure of speech to, to mean something like this, to rid a group or an organization of people who are messing it up, who are corrupt. You've heard probably that phrase used before. Uh, you may have also heard about the scandals that have been exposed in Hollywood lately with guys like Harvey Weinstein. If you haven't heard of that, you're good. You don't need to hear about it. But also uh, Michigan State University with Larry Nasser and all the junk that's gone on there. And so I've recently seen a couple of articles that say, in re- reference to both of those things in Hollywood and Michigan State University with Larry Nasser, it's time to clean house. So this morning we're looking at Jesus doing the same thing. Jesus shows up at his father's house and says, it's time to clean house. So uh, just kind of a transitional point in verse 12 from where he was last week. Last week Jesus was in Cana, and now it says he goes down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So last week he, tra- he transformed water into wine, and a few people were aware of that. His disciples in particular believed that. And uh, now they're going to go to the Jewish Passover. You see in verse 13, they take a 16-mile trip to the northeast to, 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 to Capernaum. And now they're going to go from there to uh, Jerusalem. You went up to Jerusalem because it was high in elevation, because also because it was the capital city. So that's up to Jerusalem. Then also, uh, the Passover is one of three yearly pilgrim feasts all the Jewish people went to three times a year. You may remember, if you were with us, we went through Exodus, what that's about. So that, what, what is the Passover about? It celebrates God's deliverance of the Jews from Egypt. Night, the night that the destroying angel came through and uh, didn't kill any 
person, uh, firstborn living in any home where blood was on the doorpost, the blood of the Passover lamb. So that was the Passover. And after this, Pharaoh let his people go, let the Jews go, Moses' people go, God's people go. And this was their exodus from Egypt. This was the way Israel gained their identity as God's freed people. So the question is, why does John call it the Passover of the Jews? Because everybody knew that. Certainly the Jews knew that. And even most Gentiles knew it was the Passover of the Jews. So why does John here say the Passover of the Jews? Why didn't he just call it the Passover? Well, I I believe it's this, because John was preparing his readers for the fact that Jesus is killed as the true Passover lamb on the Passover of his people. So on, on a future Passover, he will be killed Many of the, of the Jewish leaders put him to death, have, him put, have the Romans put him to death. And so this was their Passover. It certainly wasn't God's meaning for the Passover, but it was their Passover, the unbelieving people of, of his day. And if you're reading this now, John has written this after Jesus has already died and risen, so they knew this. So that's what it is pointing to, the Passover of the Jews. So the synoptic gospels, you say, what, is, what in the world is a synoptic gospel? Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you're an astute reader, you may know that from reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke that um, they present this event at the end of his ministry, where here in John's gospel it shows at the beginning. So synoptic is the word that means they see together, so those all see something similar. John's gospel is different. And there's a couple of reasons for this that are put forth. One is that um, some people think that this is... In, in these days, they weren't so committed to chronological accuracy And from our standpoint. They did it more for theological purposes. So it could be that he was just using this, putting it forward to show future opposition to Jesus. He, he might have done that. It could have done that. And that would have been a legitimate thing to do in those days. To not necessarily report it in chronological order, but report it as it relates to things that are going on theologically. Or it could be that there, this was one uh, time where Jesus enters a temple and cleanses it, and there's another time at the end. So there's two. Some people reject that. They say, well, Jesus, if he came back, wouldn't they not let him do it again? Well, this is the beginning of his ministry, so two or three years later is the end. He, didn't, he came to Jerusalem lots of times in between this time and the end of his life. So every time he came to Jerusalem, he didn't go in and, and kick people out of the temple. So I, I believe it probably makes more sense here for there to be two, but it really it's not that big a deal. Just so you know when you read the Gospels that this shows it at the beginning and the other one has a temple cleansing at the end of his, of his ministry. And here there are still many who are favorable toward Jesus after this, whereas after the ones in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's, this is like the last straw that breaks, breaks the camel's back, and uh, they end up killing him after this. In verse 14, you see that the oxen, sheep, and pigeons were there. Uh, they were provided as, for sacrifices as convenience for worshipers coming from a distance. So they didn't have to bring their own over long treks. And the exchanging money people were provided a service because people came from all over the Roman Empire with all different kinds of coinage. So they, um, they provided the money changing there also for the temple tax. Any Jewish male over 20 years old had to, once a year, pay the Jewish temple tax. So this was a convenience, they thought, right there in the temple, court of the Gentiles, front end of the temple. So what does Jesus think of this? Jesus is pretty upset. Making a whip of cords, verse 15, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple 
with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So why is Jesus so upset? I mean, he's really, really upset. He's really angry. Um, There's nothing in the text that indicates the animal sellers or the money changers were engaging in corrupt or unethical practices. Some say they were overcharging or uh, either for animals or money exchange fees. Well, that's possible. Next time he comes for the second, I believe, second temple cleansing, he says, you're making my house a house of robbers. So maybe they were doing some of that in there, but, but you don't read it here for sure. It, there's nothing that says what Jesus was angry about this time was that they were overcharging or ripping people off. Some people say, well, because you, had to, you could only sacrifice a perfect animal, that when you brought your animal in, they'd say, oh, this is not going to do. Here we have one over here, a 1967 model. It's great. Yeah, this is a good year for sheep. So uh, they certainly could do that, but it just says, it doesn't say that. So we don't know if that's what Jesus was really angry about. Um, Some say he didn't use the whip on people, so he makes a whip. He obviously, he finds something and makes a whip there in the temple when he gets there. He didn't come prepared with a whip. And um, some people say, well, he just did it on the animals. Read what it says. And making a whip of cords... He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. So I think Jesus is really mad. I think some of the people are in danger of getting whipped by Jesus. This is one angry Jesus. Again, why is he so angry? Jesus is saying they should not be in a temple at all. He's demanding that they not make his father's house a house of trade or a business. Don't make it a marketplace. In doing that, they they could distort people's understanding of how, how to approach a holy God for mercy. It seems just like it's just all a business thing. Take your business outside the temple, he's saying. The problem was that because of all the commotion of commerce in the temple, worship was disrupted. You could not focus on prayer. Instead, there's bellowing of oxen and bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness over sin and praising God in worship, there is noisy trade in business. Okay, well, that does sound kind of distracting, but... Does it really warrant this level of intensity of anger? Jesus, I mean, come on, Jesus. This is, you're really, this is not making you look good. So here's the thing. We're not like Jesus, if you've ever noticed. Our problem is we don't have Jesus' passion for his Father's glory, for his Father's holiness. The temple was the place where you could meet God, the one place in all the world where you could meet the true and living God. It's dedicated to his worship, the Father's worship. Solomon, way back when, when he dedicated the temple in his prayer, prayed this way. He said, this house is a house for God's name, where he would cause his name to dwell. And if you know anything about God's name in Scripture, God's name is a really big deal because it represents him. It represents God's greatness, all all that he is. It's not just a name like Frank or Joe or Sue or Karen. It's representing God himself. So this is a house for his name. This house is built so that all peoples of the earth would know God's name and fear him. People from the nations would hear of his great name and would come from far away for his name's sake. So God is zealous for his name, and it is equivalent to his very being. The temple was essentially equated with his name. So the temple was like, this is God's name. God's name is here. How you treated the temple was a reflection of how you thought of God's name. In essence, the sellers are breaking the third commandment and cursing God. and defiling his name. 
So you can understand how when the Son of God, who is an exact representation of his Father, when Jesus comes, who has seen and shared the Father's glory and his holiness, sees how the dedicated purpose of his Father's house is being displaced by human marketing activity, even though it's done to expedite religious activity, he gets really, really upset. He's furious. They're distorting and distracting from the holy purpose of God's house. They're prioritizing profit over God's presence and redeeming mercy and the glory of his name. Now, centuries before this, four centuries before this, the prophet Zechariah said this, there's coming a time when all worship, worship will be holy to the Lord, and there shall no longer be a traitor, T-R-A-D-E-R, in the Lord's house. So there's coming a time when there will be no more pollution in God's house, no more business in God's house like this. And Malachi, who also wrote about 400 years earlier than this, said this, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and he's coming, and he's going to purify and refine all those who lead his people in worship, so that the worship by God's people will be pleasing to the Lord. So there's coming a day when God's worship will be pleasing to to him, because the Lord will show up and clean house. When Jesus shows up, it's time to clean house. So what his disciples recalled from Scripture regarding Jesus' actions was from Psalm 69. You see this in verse 17 of John. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. I'm going to read to you just a little bit beyond that. It's in Psalm 69, so I'm just going to give you a couple of verses to give the context. In, in the days when David wrote this psalm, he was enduring reproach, scorn, dishonor, and shame for his zeal for the Lord. So in Psalm 69, it's, David wrote this, For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So how will Jesus' zeal for his father's house consume me? So David said, zeal for your house has consumed me. Jesus is saying, uh, they remembered this in terms of zeal for God's house will consume Jesus. So how will that happen? Well, when the religious authorities finally have tried him for exposing their false authority, they persuade the Romans to crucify him. That's when all the shame and scorn that Jesus bore for his father will fall upon him on the cross when he's crucified. So zeal for God's house will consume him. It'll eat him up when he dies on the cross. That's when his holy zeal for his father's house will consume him. People will think I'm weird if I'm zealous for God's glory that way. Why are we fearful of being consumed if we're... If, are, we, are we afraid of being consumed if we're zealous for God's glory? People will think you're weird if you're, if you're zealous for God's glory. Um, do we, why do we think that the more we are like Jesus, the more people will like us? They didn't like him for being who he was. Now, sometimes when we're more like Jesus, they like us, but not all the time. So what does it mean to become more like Jesus? Well, it means I love what he loves, I hate what he hates, and I'm passionate about what he's passionate about. And sometimes when that happens, it doesn't make you very popular, not more likable. In verse 18, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Verse 19, that is. The Jewish religious leaders were demanding a sign from him to prove he had God's authority to do these things. So you're coming in to do this. Prove to us you've got the right to do this. Well, Jesus never does signs on demand. He never does signs to appease unbelief. In particular, he just will never do that. 
they assume they're the authority, so they demand that Jesus prove he has the authority to do this. Jesus says, okay, you want a sign? Really? You want a sign? Here's one. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And, of course, all they can hear him doing is speaking of that literally. They, can't, they have no concept of anything beneath the surface of his words. So they naturally say to him in verse 20, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Now, the temple, this is the second temple. Solomon's temple had been destroyed earlier by the Babylonians. So when Herod began reconstructing the temple, that began 26 years ago, 46 years ago. Because they started 20 B.C., and this is now uh, 46 years later. It's interesting, in, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, A wicked and evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except for the prophet, sign of the prophet Jonah. He says what that is, is as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So same thing. He says, you want a sign? Kill me, and then I'll show you a sign. In verse 21, he clarifies, John clarifies for us that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. John tells us that Jesus was uh, speaking about the temple of his body. When he said, destroy this temple, he was saying, put me to death. And when he said, in three days I will raise it up, he was speaking of his resurrection, in three days after his death. So the, the temple was never meant to be an end in itself. Solomon recognized this when he, when he was praying at the dedication. He said, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. He's not just like the temple. He is the new temple. No, the temple couldn't contain God. But in him, Colossians 2.9 in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So it couldn't be contained in the temple, but in this man, Jesus, as we saw back in chapter 1, God dwelt fully in him. The temple was the one place on earth where people could meet with the true and living God. There is no longer any place on earth where you can meet the true and living God. In other words, there are no more sacred places where you meet God. Not on the golf course, not on the mountain. Certainly you can get in touch with God there if you already know him, but that's not where you go meet God. You, you can only meet God in Jesus Christ, in a person. There is no sacred place except a sacred person, Jesus Christ. If you want to meet God, you've got to meet Jesus. The temple was where sacrifices were offered for temporary forgiveness and cleansing from, from sin. Now, because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you can have eternal, eternal forgiveness of sins which is better than temporary. And cleansing from sin through faith in the resurrected Christ. Verse 22 says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. His disciples remembered after he was was raised from the dead that he said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They remembered that, but not until after that. Jesus had said before he died, he said after he is raised, he would send the Spirit who would help them recall and understand what he had said. Until that time, Jesus, until Jesus was raised and gave the Spirit, they could not understand Jesus' words about the resurrection and his death. They could just never get that. So the death and resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate temple cleansing. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate 
temple cleansing, the ultimate cleansing of any human efforts to reach God. And it says, his disciples believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. John doesn't tell us which scripture they believed, but they believed Jesus' word, that his body, that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of all the temple was meant to be. And they understood and believed the Old Testament scripture that taught this. So what does, what does this mean for us today? How do we apply this? Make sure you go clean up the church floors. Greg and I were recalling both from both of our past church experience that uh, well-meaning church leaders had made policies. You're not to sell any like youth stuff or mission stuff in the church foyer because that would violate the sacred space like Jesus did here, like Jesus was taking care of here. Is that what this means? Is that how we apply it today? It's not. Why not? It's because the connection here is not between the temple and church buildings, like as if church buildings are sacred spaces. It's between the temple and Jesus. So that's where we find our application for today. Of course, Jesus is not anywhere on earth in person. So the way we, we meet him today is through the gospel, the Christ-centered word. That's how you meet Jesus today, only through the gospel. Because he's not going to show up here until he returns. When he, when he returns, yes, he'll be here. But until that time, the only way you know about Jesus is through the gospel, which is really the Christ-centered word of his scripture. In other words, this is what's true. God, the Father, shall accept no other sacrifice than Jesus, who's the true Passover lamb and the true temple of God. Only in Jesus can a person be reconciled to God and dwell with him. The business of the church is proclaiming the gospel. Jesus is the crucified Lamb of God who alone can remove the sin and shame of the world. Only those who receive this gospel, purchased for them by Christ, can dwell in God's house with him forever. So here's the truth statement that you need to come away with. Truth statement, please. Yeah, there we go. Christ's people must not cater to religious consumerism, but must believe the gospel and keep it pure and prominent. In other words, like Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15.3, pure and of first importance. So what does that mean? Well, let me tell you. We could fill our time with human religious activities. But if it's interfering with you hearing and believing and growing in Christ-centered truth, we're making a gathering where you should meet Jesus, a gathering for human religious consumption. Or we could give you the impression that if you come to church on Sunday, go to youth group or Bible study during the week and read your Bible and give money to the church, you're in with God. We could tell you that. But if we did, the Scripture says those things are good, but unless you are trusting in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection as your only hope for forgiveness of all your sins forever and for eternal life with God, those are all empty activities. They have no value, in fact, negative value, unless you have Jesus in in you by faith. Or we could make the Scriptures appeal to consumer Christianity to tell you how to be the best you you can be, to make you feel better about yourself, 
uh, to teach therapeutic moral lessons and treat the Bible like a self-help book. We could do that, but that would be violating this text. Or we could tell you that if you just do the best you can to be good, avoid the really bad sins like murder, uh, if you recycle and support the Humane Society, and do nice things like pay it forward when you're in the uh, drive-up window line at, the, at a fast food restaurant, then you're on God's nice list, no longer on his naughty list. We love to believe those things, but they're false, and so we're not, we're not going to teach it. We could tell you that if you, we could spin the scripture so as to avoid telling you that we are by nature dead in our sins. Ooh, no, we don't like to hear that. We want to know if there's things we can do on our own. The Bible says we're dead in our sins. We're helpless to save ourselves from eternal judgment. There's nothing we can do of our own self to save ourselves from eternal judgment. That's bad news. If we don't tell you the bad news, the good news will be, so, huh, man, so what? Of course. We could tell you that we just need a little help from God to do better. That God, if you just help me do a little bit better, I'll make it. We could tell you that if you just look inside yourself to find that inner light or spiritual spark, that you can reach your spiritual potential. Or we could tell you that God exists for your happiness so that you have the right to get rid of anything that doesn't make you happy. If somebody or someone or something doesn't make you happy, get rid of it. If it makes you happy, do it, by all means. We could tell you that. You might like to hear that, but that'd be polluting the temple. If we avoid teaching the hard things of Scripture, if we teach them, if we teach the Bible as a man-centered book rather than a Christ-centered, Christ-fulfilled, Christ-soaked, Christ-saturated, Christ-exalting, Christ-fulfilled book, we can please people, but we won't please God. And we kind of like pleasing God. That's a good thing to do. Paul, the apostle, was like his, his Lord Jesus, where he got really, really angry when people distorted the gospel. So in Galatians 1, he said this twice, If anyone distorts the gospel, let him be accursed, or in the Aramaic, anathema, which means go to hell. If anybody distorts the gospel, they should go to hell. That's how angry Paul was, and that's how angry Jesus was when he came to the temple and saw the interference with the truth going on there. The prosperity gospel, like those selling in the temple, gives the impression that access to God, his grace, can be obtained with earthly riches, or that the gospel is a means of obtaining earthly wealth. That deserves to be booted out of God's house, never spoken. That's wrong. And if we point out these things today, you're called a hater. So sometimes the price you pay when you point out error, you're called a hater. But it's not loving to tell people lies, is it? It's not loving to tell people things, to teach Hallmark card Christianity. It's not loving for us to teach worldly, man-pleasing, feel-good pep talks, not to cut out false teaching that deceives you regarding Christ and the gospel. But sometimes even when you speak the truth, people believe with a false belief. Oh, no, really? Yeah, look at verse 23. In verse 23, we see that uh, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Wow, that's great. Many? Jesus, you're killing it. John doesn't tell us what the signs were, but this is in keeping with what he says at, at the end of his book, where he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So even when he, there's way too many for him to record. 
But these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So, wow, this sounds pretty good. You should share this at your next uh, meeting, Jesus. Did all these people receive life in Jesus' name by believing? Verse 24. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What Jesus knows of people keeps him from entrusting himself to them. What Jesus knows of people keeps him from entrusting himself to them. The word translated entrust is the same word translated believe in verse 23. So they believed in Jesus. He was not believing in them. People say that sometimes. Well, Jesus believes in you. Uh, Does he? It says he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He didn't need anyone to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. He knew that many or most of these people were just responding to the signs, which if the signs are meant to lead people to faith, but they were just impressed by Jesus' power. They didn't consider what the signs revealed about who he was, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and they weren't really trusting in him. The problem for these people is not with the signs, for Jesus said that even if you didn't believe in his words, believe for the sake of his works, his signs. So it's valid to believe in signs, but the signs are to take you to believe and trust in Jesus, not just be impressed with him. The problem is what, what is in people. And what is in us? What is in us is the problem. Well, we have a bent toward trusting in ourselves. We're bent toward trusting in ourselves. We're bent toward trusting in other, anything else but God. Or things in this world. Martin Luther, the reformer, said we're curved in, our, in on ourselves. We are curved in on ourselves. That's a problem. We're bent toward ourselves. Our hearts relentlessly resist trusting in God. In keeping with our natural bent, we are constantly told to believe in ourselves as, as the answer to our problems. Just believe in yourself. And you'll, that'll fix it. We may be willing to acknowledge some facts about Jesus or even be impressed with what he does, but we, we can do these things without truly believing or trusting in him so as to love him and live for him. We're so prone to deception about ourselves that Jeremiah the prophet says, the heart is deceitful above all things. That's quite a statement. Our hearts are deceitful above all things. There's nothing else as deceitful as our hearts. And they're desperately sick. Who can understand it? Run the diagnostics on your heart. The doctor says your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. You can't understand how deceitful your heart is. Walter Isaacson's biography on Stephen Jobs, the late founder of Apple, said this about him. He had a reality distortion field around him. He had a reality distortion field around him, so he he would interpret anything that was happened or said how he wanted it to how he wanted to hear it. We also have a truth distortion field around us where, where we can interpret things in our favor that do not agree with God's word. So the question for us is really, 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 really simple. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? as Savior, Christ, and Son of God? Are you really trusting in Him? More than you trust in yourself or any other person or thing or pursuit on this earth? Are you?
Jesus thought it was, it was, that's a hazard to not do that. So the question may be, does Jesus entrust himself to you? The story goes that Charles Spurgeon, he was a great pastor in England in 19th century London, was walking down the street one day when a man who was drunk, leaning on a lamppost, yelled out to him, Hey, Mr. Spurgeon, do you know me? He said, Why should I? He said, I'm one of your converts. He said, Well, you must be one of my converts because you're certainly not one of the Lord's converts. And that's how it can be sometimes. When we just respond to what people say and we haven't really trusted the Lord, your life may never change. You'll never give evidence of trusting in Christ. Now, trusting in Jesus doesn't mean that you fully understand all the Scripture reveals about him. His disciples didn't. It doesn't mean that you have all your questions answered. It means you recognize that in Jesus, Jesus Christ alone is your hope for eternal life, since he is God's Son who purchased life for you in his death and resurrection. Jesus is the way to God. Just like the temple was the one place you could meet God. Jesus is the way to God. When you believe the gospel, you meet God in Christ and will live in his house forever with him. That's the gospel, the good news, is when you meet Jesus Christ and you trust in his death and resurrection to save you, you will live forever with God. If you believe in Jesus this way, trusting in his body as God's dwelling place and his infinitely valuable shed blood to redeem you, he invites you to his rehearsal dinner. And here it is. We have it available for you this morning. The bread represents his body, that he, the God himself dwelt in Jesus' body. It was God on the cross and his shed blood who redeems you from every sin is represented in the cup. So if you believe in Christ, you're able to take this meal meaningfully. After, after I'm done, we'll pray. Ben will come up. I want you to take a minute to be quiet before yourself and ask yourself, am I really trusting in Christ? Have I really trusted in him? And if you have, then you may take this bread, dip it in the cup, and whenever you want to take it, either here or back at your seat, take it. If you haven't yet believed and trusted in Jesus Christ in this way, then this meal won't mean anything for you, and so you shouldn't take it. So I'm going to pray, and we'll prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper, his rehearsal dinner for when he does come and brings us into his Father's house.